Well, good morning, saints. We are taking a break. We're stepping aside from 1 John, and we're looking at three words. Light, love, and life. John uses these words often in his writing. And they point us to the advent, the coming of Christ, also the ministry of Christ, who he is, and what he came to accomplish. We began by looking at the word light in the Old Testament. We did a little survey and showed how in the prophetic writings, in the book of Psalms, even earlier on in the Pentateuch, the word light has a lot of significance. The light of God is his righteousness. It's his truth. It's his glory. It's his protection. It's his comfort. It was no small matter when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, showing who he truly is. Last week, we looked at the word love, specifically in the book of Romans. We often consider Romans to be that great book regarding faith, which it is. But love is a theme that runs throughout. Paul says that God has poured his love into our hearts. That God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's a very remarkable moment in the 8th chapter. It's a verse we all know very well, I'm sure. God works all things for good for those who love him. For the first time in that book, it's in verse, he talks about our love for God. Only God can do that in our hearts. When he pours his love into our hearts, we then naturally love him. John put it this way. We love because God first loved us. So now we come to the heart of the matter. As we consider the advent, the coming of Jesus, we look at the third L, which is the word life. Jesus said in John 10, I have come that they might have life and have it overflowing. So I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn or scroll to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. This morning we're going to take a little little passage from Paul's writings to Timothy, who was a young pastor. Remember that verse that many of us love, God has not given us a spirit of fear? Well, this is what comes right after that. But notice, notice how he talks about the coming of Christ... In the context of rich and beautiful theology. Gospel theology. Pay attention, at least on the screens. I've, I've underlined a few words that we'll come back to. Therefore, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. It would be helpful if I told you where we are. Therefore, Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us 
and called us to a holy calling or a holy life, as the NIV says. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle, which is why a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced or I am persuaded that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. What a stunning summation of the coming of Christ. Why Jesus came. What he did for us. So we're going to drill down to the center of this text and then work our way out from there. So here we have in this text the punchline. Life. This is why Jesus came. Before we develop this glorious truth, I want us to backtrack a little earlier in the text that we just read. As Paul develops Advent theology, truth about why Jesus came in the first place. So look back, if you would, I think it's verse uh, 10. It says, it's on the screen here as well. He's talking about the power of God and the gospel. I want to highlight a few truths that he gives us in regarding to the coming of Jesus. Let us never just glibly talk about Jesus coming. Jesus being born in a manger. Jesus... Being born in Bethlehem. The thought that God put into this. The rich meaning and the implications of it. Are astounding. First of all he says. God who saved us. And called us. With a holy calling. If you have the NIV it says to a holy life. That captures the meaning of what Paul is conveying. Through the gospel, God saved us. Saved us from his wrath on our sin. Tied together with being reconciled to God, to being saved, is a holy life. That's what John will speak to a lot. The life of God in the life of a person. The Bible does not know this concept that someone can be saved and yet not live a holy life. That is, live a life disinterested from the things of God. But notice what he says as well. All of this was not because of our works. Rich 
gospel truth. The beauty and the freedom of the gospel is that it is not the result of my good efforts trying harder. My church attendance, feeding the poor, not cussing, not yelling at people, however you want to name it, those are good things, but they're not what save us. God saving us through the gospel is completely apart from our efforts. And let me tell you, that is so freeing. It is a great relief to know that to be made right with God, to be reconciled with him, I don't have to try harder because I can't accomplish it. But notice what he goes on to say. This is sacred ground here. He saved us not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is God's working. Scripture rightly says that salvation is of the Lord. God's purpose, God's intent, this is why he sent Christ. This is why Christ came. And this is grace. Put it in reverse. Not because of my good works or my efforts or my religiosity. I am saved. And now naturally begin to live a life that where I actually want to do the right thing. That is only by God's grace. Never overlook these little statements. But then he says this. His own purpose and grace. Which he gave us in Christ. Jesus. Before the ages began. It's a really complicated word in the original. I don't know how you even, basically from eternity, like before the ages, before time began. Like this is not about you, it's about God. It's about his purpose, his grace in our life. He was not caught off guard in the garden. That's why Jesus is said to be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But now here's your Advent statement. All of this from eternity past, God working his purposes, showing his grace, which has now, now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. When we take time to consider the coming of Christ, what a profound, deep, Meditation. That God is coming to our rescue. That little baby, Emmanuel, God with us. All of what Paul has just described, the grace, the purpose, saving us, calling us to a holy life. All of that is realized through The appearing of Jesus. John, when he says that Christ appeared, it was to destroy the works of the devil, 
It's a very sudden word. It's not a word that you would describe the birth of a baby. Well, we were kind of expecting that for about nine months prior to this. What John says is Christ appeared. We know he was born of Mary. But God showed up. God showed up. So let's go back. Why did Christ come? To bring life. Saints, if he came bringing life, that tells us that we did not have life outside of him. We did not need to be renovated or improved or reformed. We needed to be transformed. So when the scripture talks about salvation, if anyone is in Christ, he is a a new creation. Old things are past. Everything, everything has become new. Let's look at how Jesus himself defines or explains what eternal life is. This is the high priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus says, and this is eternal life. That they may know you. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing Christ. That kind of upends the cultural philosophies that we hear today. Because what the gospel is saying is you do not know God. You need to be reconciled with him. Jesus came that we might be reconciled to God. That we might have life. Life is not just how long, but it's a quality of life. It's knowing Christ. Again, watch for that concept in First John. So now let's go back again to our sermon text. Look at this statement. How did Jesus, or in what way did Jesus come bringing life? There's a violent term that is used here. It says that Jesus abolished or destroyed death. You can't have life and death going on at the same time. So in order to bring life, in order to bring eternal life to us, Jesus first had to defeat death, which is the resurrection. If you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is Paul's great treatment on the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection in general, Paul ties all of this together. By being raised from the dead, Jesus conquered death. He would no longer be subject to it. And we are the first fruits, or he is the first fruits of those who were raised from the dead, which will include us. But now watch what he says. By destroying death, 
He brought life. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't want you to to miss the significance of what he is saying. He brings life and immortality. Immortality is a very straightforward way of saying your life will never come to an end. We know that we physically likely will die. We know that Christ died. We know that Christ is risen from the dead. We know that we will be raised from the dead on that day to be with him forever. And so Paul says, listen, Christ came not to give you warm fuzzies this time of year. There's lots of cultural things we do, family gatherings, and those are wonderful. But we have to understand the essence of why Jesus came and why he had to come. He brought life. He brought immortality. And remember, he says he did this through the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news. But the gospel is the only way. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But if we continue reading in that same passage that we just looked at, there's a key application that Paul develops here, and that is assurance. You see, becoming a Christian is not believing in Jesus and then, well, I I hope I make it. I think I will. If I'm good enough, I will. If I perform well enough, I will. You see, we laid all of that at the cross when we became a Christian. God is faithful to what he has promised us. Look at what he says at the very end. For I know whom I have believed. I know. I know that I know that I know whom I have believed. Where I have put my faith and my confidence and my trust and my hope. I know that and I am convinced I am persuaded that he will be faithful to what he says and do for me what he has promised. John speaks to this so much. Those times when we doubt, when we question, he says, well, just look at, look at the work of God, the life of God in your life. Just kind of look back and see God in you. He will not let us down. He is faithful. But here's something I want us to connect this morning. When Paul talks about this wonderful assurance, I know that God is faithful. I believed in him. He will not let me down now or in the future or in eternity. But notice this assurance is not just mere head knowledge. 
It's not just designed to bless us and that's it. God saves us. God changes us so that we can be a blessing to others. So that we can live out this faith. This change that God has brought about in us. That we can live that out. Paul does not apply this assurance in a self-serving way. Rather, Paul takes this assurance and he fleshes it out. Notice the number of times going back. Remember I said we underlined some words in this text. He begins by saying, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Verse 8, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Never does the New Testament say, I am so glad you're a Christian. Relax, take it easy, sit back, and enjoy heaven. Never, not once. To the contrary. We are constantly being called and reminded to say no to temptation, to say no to sin, to serve the Lord, to love our neighbor, to make disciples, to share the gospel, that we would be a conduit of the love of God that has been placed in us. Notice how Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He was a technically a prisoner of a lot of different people throughout his storied career as an apostle. But that's not his perspective. I'm serving the Lord. I am a prisoner to the Lord. I serve him unyieldingly. I will not, I will not shrink back from giving him my best and my all. Paul knew from the very beginning That the call on his life was to suffer. You just read through the book of Acts and you can see that unfolding clearly. But what Paul tells us is, listen, in light of the fact that Christ has come, you've been reconciled, you've been saved, you're born again. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. Don't hide that. Don't don't put it like it's a secondary part of your life. But I love what Paul does. He says, join me. He doesn't ask you to do, or me, that which he is not willing to do himself or is not already doing. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. In your family, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, your school, wherever you are, don't be quiet. Don't be ashamed. Don't shrink back. But be a salt and a light wherever you are. He goes on to say towards the end again, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. I am identifying with Christ and I suffer for it. 
I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Saints, Christ has come. Christ has suffered for our sins. He has risen again. Our faith and our trust is in him. We are currently living in crazy times. I don't need to tell you that. Take strength in the Lord. And don't shrink back from telling others about him. Living out your convictions. And living with the joy of the Lord. So people can see him in you. Let's make a few applications as we close out. First thing I'd like to say is this. By way of personal application. The Puritans would call the eternal perspective the crown jewel of faith. When you and I can live our lives intentionally focusing on that which is eternal. Reminding ourselves and reflecting and meditating before the Lord on the brevity of life. When you read through the New Testament, all the different authors, they say it in in their own unique ways. James says, look, your life is, is but a vapor. You're actually not even guaranteed of tomorrow. I promise you, this will bring you such joy and such confidence and such comfort when you begin to put your life and what you are going through right now, when you put that into the ba- against the backdrop of eternity. The New Testament is replete with these references. Romans 8, verse 18. I, Paul says, My suffering right now cannot even be compared to the weight of glory ahead. So don't lose sight of the eternal perspective because that's why Christ came in the first place. Connected to that. Does my life, how I think, how I conduct myself, how I interact with others, does it reflect my heavenly inheritance? You see, for Paul, it did. Paul went from a guy who was very well known, very well respected, lived lived a comfortable life financially as well, I'm sure, Everybody loved and honored him. He exchanged that for being slandered, beaten up, left for half dead, opposed in every city he went to. Living a life of discomfort and of persecution and of suffering for the sake of the gospel because to do the latter is far better than the former. So, in your decisions... How you engage others, does it reflect the fact that you have an inheritance laid up in heaven for you that will never perish, spoil, or fade? And I am not guilt tripping any of us. I'm saying let's remember who we are in Christ. So now here's another specific one. I use the word courageous on purpose. 
What is one courageous step that I can take this week or maybe in the weeks to come to identify with Christ in a way that I haven't done before? Or perhaps in a way that I've been embarrassed or ashamed to do so. I think if we think long enough, we'll find those opportunities. I want to encourage you, myself included, let's be bold for Christ. Let's follow Paul. It may not, it likely will not always be the popular path to take. It will likely not be well received by others. That's kind of, we've been told that up front. But let's be bold. Let's be courageous in wearing Christ for others to see in every way. So saints, I commend to you these three words. The light of God, the love of God, and the life of God. As we continue in the new year in 1 John, you'll see these concepts hopefully kind of a little bit magnified as we go through. But just remember, God loves you. God loves you so deeply. The coming of Jesus foretold by for hundreds of years through the prophets Hundreds of years, people who had never met one another before, talking about the same person, not fully understanding it themselves. God has made a way. If your faith is in Christ, you are reconciled with God. And you have eternity with him to enjoy. Take strength, take comfort, and take courage. Would you bow and prepare your hearts for prayer? I know it's quite possible even for those who have been coming to church or raised in a Christian family or hanging around Christians for a long time to not fully understand what it means to believe in Jesus. You see, as they often say, a car that is sitting in a garage is a car not because it's in a garage. You can't put something else in there and say, well, it's in the garage, therefore it's a car. A Christian is not just someone, not necessarily someone who associates with other Christians or goes to church You can do all of those things without actually being born again yourself. Remember, Jesus said, you must be born again. And here's how that works. When you consider your own sin, when you consider your own failings, your own shortcomings, And you abandon your efforts, your attempts to rectify those through trying harder. You see, salvation is spoken of in terms of a gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Have you abandoned your efforts, your, your best intentions, and believe that Jesus died for you, bore your sins, and rose again? If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible does say today is the day of your salvation. It is the best news you could ever hear. This is why everyone was so excited in the Gospels when they understood who Jesus is and why he came. Don't let another day go by. Without being made right with God. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for what this time of year represents. Of course, it's every day of every year. We know that. But what a joy, what a blessing. To set aside some time consciously, purposefully. To reflect. To be encouraged. To remember how deeply God loves us. Christ did not shrink back. From suffering. From laying down his life. For the joy set before him. Lord we know. These are difficult times. Confusing times. Challenging times. Anchor us please. In your faithfulness, in your goodness, in your kindness, in your deep and unfailing love for us. It is so easy to be distracted or caught up in the affairs of this life in so many different ways. Renew us and refresh us in who we are in you. And help us to be good news to those around us. Perhaps as we engage family that we haven't seen in a while this week. Use us to be good news. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.